Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Johanna Wagstaff, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? COVID-19 has grounded air travel for many of us. Before the pandemic hit, some people in this country were already curbing their own air travel for climate reasons. It became a matter of moral consistency that if I really was serious, that I had to fly a whole lot less. Aviation makes up at least 2% of global emissions. But with the number of passengers expected to double in the next two decades, projections suggest emission growth could be exponential if unchecked. And little has been done so far to bring those numbers down. In the aviation sector, I think it's fair to say we haven't really even been trying. Aviation emissions are literally a footnote in those emission reports. With the industry looking to rebound after the pandemic, pressure is on to rapidly reduce emissions. And while some are testing out ideas... You know, we're trying to stay ahead of that and be a part of that transformation and actually trying to lead it. Decarbonizing the skies isn't for the faint of heart. I'm very optimistic that aviation can reduce its climate impact. I certainly am not optimistic that we can, in a short time, be flying with zero emissions. That's a really big challenge. This week, we break down that challenge and scan the horizon for solutions to keep our skies blue, or cavu, as my fellow pilots say, clear above, visibility unlimited. Many of us can't fly right now because of COVID, no longer traveling to far-off places or even visiting loved ones. But long before the pandemic hit, Erica Frank gave up a life of boarding passes and departure gates. We reached her in Nanus Bay on Vancouver Island. Hello, glad to be talking with you. Thanks for joining us. So I think it's safe to say that you had the travel bug. Let's go back a couple of decades. What did your travel life look like? Well, bottom line is I've traveled and worked in 69 countries, and I'm 58 years old. So y'all can do the math on that one. I had a very active travel life and loved, loved traveling. What did you love about it? Well, it was travels that initially gave me my sense of mission, traveling in low and middle income countries and getting a chance to see firsthand the extraordinary privilege that I brought and being able to understand what the rest of the world really looked like and be motivated to act on that. And then you decided to make a big change. What did you do? Well, about a little more than a decade ago, a friend and colleague of mine in Vancouver came up with this graph showing the relative carbon footprint of one flight per year versus everything else that one might do to try to reduce one's carbon footprint and be kinder to the environment. And it was astonishing and humbling. One round-trip flight to Toronto economy class had a bigger carbon footprint than the average person in Nepal or in the Philippines would have in a whole year. So was it just cold turkey after that? How did you make the transition to where you're at right now? 
Well, it wasn't cold turkey. Um, I still have professional obligations and family hungry to get together scattered across the diaspora. But I went on a profound diet. I combined trips. I, even before the pandemic, um, persuaded people that I could give a keynote address from around the world. And one of my favorite instances of that early on was I was giving a keynote remotely in New Zealand. And I asked the people to make small groups. And I said, yeah, and you in in the front with the, the checkered shirt on. And everyone, this was three or four years ago, everyone sort of gasped and giggled because until that moment, they hadn't realized that I really was in so many ways present. <laughs> Why was making this big change so ultimately important for you? Well, it's a matter of equity. If you look at the pleasure and advantage that I got from being able to do that travel, it wasn't a fraction of the pain that the rest of the globe had to suffer from as a consequence of my indulgence. And it was a pretty serious move, traveling from almost 70 countries to almost nothing. What did that feel like? Well, I think uh, many people have a sense of what that feels like now because we've all Mm -hmm. been on an air travel carbon diet for the last year, right? So it felt sometimes a little disconnected, but we've all figured out together how to recapture at least some of that intimacy and joy without having to leave our contrails behind us. You mentioned that you you still take a few flights. What do you do to minimize the climate effects of those? So one thing that I do is to combine my errands. So one of the last trips that I took was an 11-country loop in 14 days because that was a really efficient way to make this trip and be able to get maximal yield from it professionally and personally. Another thing that I do is always book economy because since you're allocated a larger volume of space in business class or first, you obviously use a greater proportion of the airplane's fuel. Do you think that the pandemic will change the way people approach flying? So the main sector that I work in, in education, has seen a transformation because of the pandemic from people disparaging online education to embracing it as a way to improve equity and access both domestically and globally. So we've all had a lesson in that. And we've all had a lesson in how can we find good substitutes to hugging our families on a regular basis for those of us who aren't in the same pods. So yeah, I do think that we've all had a year plus long tutorial in the necessity of doing this um, from a pandemic perspective. And now hopefully we can apply some of those lessons and address the necessity of flying less from a climate change perspective. Erica, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. With climate change on the minds of people like Erica Frank, at least one aircraft manufacturer says it wants to work towards a lower emissions future. I am Grazia Vitadini, Chief Technology Officer for Airbus. 
and its uh, divisions with the duty and privilege. Vitadini says Airbus hopes to produce several zero-mission planes by 2035. While she wouldn't specify how much money it will spend, she says decarbonizing air travel is important to her company and to its bottom line. Even before the crisis hit us, it had really become a widely accepted view that preserving our climate and environment is the indispensable foundation upon which we have to build the future of aviation. So I really do firmly believe there won't be any future profit without climate protection. Now, the company's plan has been met with fanfare and skepticism. But first, some details about the proposal. Vitadini says the company has its eyes on hydrogen as a fuel source. It allows us to further decrease CO2 emissions, NOx emissions. Once you have hydrogen on board, you can use it also, for instance, to power fuel cells as an alternative to batteries. To be clear, hydrogen is not a simple solution for powering planes. In fact, it hasn't been done yet. And that might be because you need special storage at ultra-low temperatures, a supply chain at airports, and there are potential safety risks. But Vitadini says she's optimistic it can be done. Our timeline to come to market by 2035 is definitely ambitious. And to get to that point in time, we need to start selecting specific technologies by 2025. Now, specifically, when it comes to hydrogen, we have different demonstrators to ultimately de-risk refueling, aircraft tank storage, and the challenge of distribution of hydrogen on an aircraft in cryogenic conditions. She also says hydrogen is just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to decarbonizing aviation. In our field, there is no single bullet solutions when it comes to achieving targets as ambitious as decarbonizing the sky. So we are not relying on hydrogen alone to get us there. Vitadini says Airbus can't do it alone either, and that developing zero-emission planes requires cooperation across the industry, as well as support from governments and regulators. So that's the view from one company on the ground. For a big-picture view from, say, 35,000 feet, we've reached Andrew Murphy. He is the director of the Aviation Division for Transport and Environment. It's a European nonprofit working with industry and government to try to decarbonize transportation, including air travel. Hi, Andrew. Hi. So we'll get to Airbus in a moment, but let's start with emissions. Just how bad is air travel for emissions? Well, globally, it's responsible for about 2% of CO2 emissions, which doesn't sound too bad, but that's at the same level of CO2 emissions you get from a country like Germany. And remember, in our daily lives, um, getting on a flight is one of the most carbon-intensive activities we can do. Um, dollar for dollar or hour for hour, it is, it is the, the thing we can do which warms the planet most. So what's been done so far to address this problem? Very, very little. Um, and I think it's important to compare the aviation sector to other parts of, of our economy. So governments have been have stepped in over the years in areas like um, car efficiency, building standards, renewable electricity, and they've put a lot of laws in place and they've put a lot of targets and, and finance in place. And as a result, we're starting to see other sectors cut their emissions. 
in the aviation sector, I think it's fair to say we haven't really even been trying. And I think there's two ways we've really gone wrong um, in trying to cut emissions from flying. The first is we don't tend to count them that much. Um, when countries tot up their CO2 emissions and report their emissions to the UN, aviation emissions are literally a footnote in those emission reports. And the second way we've gone wrong is focusing on offsetting. So this idea of planting trees um, instead of, of cutting your own emissions. And for too long, the airline sector has been pursuing offsetting, uh, which we see as a distraction from the measures which can actually cut emissions from flying. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about offsets. I've, I've heard it referred to as the, the silver bullet up until now. Why is it that they're so controversial? So there's a few reasons. Um, firstly, they don't. They tend not to work. A lot of times when offsets are purchased, um, it's for, as I said, you know, planting trees, which the trees then get cut down, or um, renewable energy projects that were going to take place anyway. So the first problem is they, they've never worked kind of in, in practice. Um, but the bigger problem is anytime you decide to focus on offsetting, you're not taking care of your own problem. You're basically just kind of postponing the problem to five years or 10 years. So, okay, buy a few offsets today. But in five years' time, what do you do? What's your plan? And the aviation sector has constantly kept putting off having to reduce its own emissions and has been relying on offsetting instead. And, and now that's kind of catching up with it because it doesn't have the technologies and the solutions in place. You're familiar with the plans Airbus announced. What's your reaction to that? It's very easy to announce um, a big plan like that and get a lot of attention. Designing new aircraft, building new aircraft, particularly you know whole new types of aircraft like a hydrogen aircraft, it's a very difficult and expensive thing to do. I don't doubt Airbus's enthusiasm, but you know what we need to see is a lot more about how much money Airbus is going to put in. And for example, to make a comparison, um, in the US, General Motors a few weeks ago announced the end of the internal combustion engine. They're going to phase out the old uh, way of, of making cars. And when General Motors did that, they put an end date to phasing out the car and they also put money on the table. They said, I think it's 35 billion we'll put into electric vehicles. We didn't see similar from Airbus. We didn't see Airbus announce they were going to stop producing fossil fuel powered aircraft. We have no idea how much money Airbus are going to put into this. Um, so the hydrogen can have a role to play in decarbonizing aviation, but we need to see a lot more detail on what Airbus is exactly planning to do and, and how much they plan to spend. I just want to go down that electric car thread for a moment. Um, we have cars, as you said, that are fully electric and have been for years now. Uh, why is it that we're only just seeing this momentum from aviation on this now? What's what's the big challenge? I think we are seeing the airline sector under a lot more pressure. Um, and we're seeing the airline sector under a lot more pressure as climate becomes a bigger issue for many people, um, for many voters, for many consumers. Um, up until, you know, even five years ago, a lot of the conversation was around becoming more efficient. It was around, you know, some sectors cutting their emissions. But the Paris Agreement has a, has a very clear goal, which is to essentially eliminate all emissions by, you know, sometime after 2050. And in the last few years, you've seen an increasing number of countries adopt net zero climate targets. And it's getting harder and harder for the aviation sector to kind of hide. And it's getting harder for the aviation sector just to say, well, our aircraft um, are more efficient. More efficient aircraft was their, their big climate selling point. But the Paris Agreement isn't about burning fossil fuels more efficiently. Um, it's not about offsetting. The Paris Agreement is about stopping burning fossil fuels, stopping powering your economy or your planes by fossil fuels. And the airline sector doesn't have a plan to date. It's kind of scrambling to come up with one. There are some promising possibilities, but you know, a lot more ambition is needed by industry 
but also by governments. The Paris Climate Agreement, I think our our listeners are are quite familiar with now, it did bring on limits uh, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, as you mentioned, for all nations starting in 2020. But can can you go into more more detail about why aviation and shipping were excluded? Uh, So there is a perception out there that aviation and shipping emissions were left out. Actually, the Paris Agreement is is pretty plainly written. It talks about covering all emissions. It talks about economy-wide targets. So the Paris Agreement isn't a problem. What is often the problem is the laws and targets which are set by governments. And I know in Canada, um, your parliament and government are reviewing a new climate law. And what that climate law is doing is, as I understand it, currently excludes aviation from its targets. So and we're seeing this across the world where governments are setting net zero targets, which is good. But so far, um, they haven't quite included aviation uh, and shipping emissions. And that's a big shame because if these sectors aren't in those targets, they tend to get overlooked uh, when it comes to developing new technologies and funding new research. Yeah. So uh, here in Canada, I mean, we have the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, the international group that uh, mm-hmm. Canada is part of. And the government here says that as of 2021, Canadian air operators with international flights will be, quote, required to take action in accordance with the amount of greenhouse gas emissions they emit, end quote. So in this case, it is through offsets. How optimistic mm-hmm. are you that any international body or any one country can regulate via that that route? No. So ICAO have had responsibility and to some extent kind of ownership of the aviation climate issue now for over over two decades since the Kyoto Protocol was signed in the 90s. And the best they've come up with is an extremely weak offsetting scheme that actually won't kick in for a few more years because there's been some changes made to the target. And, you know, ICAO have had, you know, those two decades. Um, they haven't produced the goods and they haven't produced really a meaningful plan to cut emissions from aviation. And I think that that's understandable. It's a UN agency. It's 190 countries. You know, it lacks enforcement powers. It's very cumbersome to make decisions. Uh, we don't see that really as as offering the, the path to um, decarbonizing aviation. Because at the, at the end of the day, what the aviation sector needs to decarbonize isn't one big global agreement. It is an industrial policy um, at national level, which is focusing on new fuels and new aircraft. And we need countries, big countries, wealthy countries, um, to get behind those kind of technologies and to do so urgently if the sector is going to have a sustainable future. Andrew Murphy is director of the Aviation Division for the European nonprofit Transport and Environment. When it comes to counting emissions in this country, the latest data shows total greenhouse gas emissions in 2018 tipped the scales at 729 megatons of carbon dioxide. Environment and Climate Change Canada says about 1% of that comes from any type of flight that takes off and lands on Canadian soil. Our national inventory, though, does not include CO2 from international flights. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Canada's climate plan does say in order to meet long-term climate objectives, 
We need to, quote, transform aviation, spanning everything from plane design to fuel sources. So we called up David Zing. We're very interested in unconventional configurations, meaning aircraft that look quite different from today's aircraft and the aircraft we've seen for a long time. So this includes what are called hybrid wing bodies, strut-braced wings, truss-braced wings, box wings. So we're really keen to find out how much potential these configurations have to reduce emissions in the future. He's a professor of computational aerodynamics. When it comes to plane design, Zing says a new aircraft might be 20 to 30 percent more efficient than the one before it. But that's only because airlines renew their fleets every so often. I mean, normally an airline is going to want to use its aircraft for, you know, 25 years. It's not like an iPhone where you, uh, if a better one comes out, you just discard the old one. With an aircraft, it's a little, there's a bigger investment involved. And he adds, tweaking designs to reduce drag can only go so far. As for jet fuel, David Zing says sustainable aviation fuel is needed. But there are challenges on that front, too. This is kind of perceived as a silver bullet sometimes because it's the only path, say, to zero carbon, unlike, say, reducing drag. But on the other hand, it's very slow. It takes a long time. It's expensive. So we, we know how to make biofuels that work, but to make them available in bulk without impacting food supply and making them cost not too much more than jet fuel is a long process. So uh, it's uh, fuels are a huge part of the picture, but it's uh, a mistake to make them the only part of the picture. And while he is skeptical aviation can hit zero emissions by 2050, he says governments need to think beyond their own borders. The problems are sort of political. If Canada is mostly concerned with reducing emissions from aircraft that uh, fly in Canada or depart from Canada. Investing in better aircraft technology will target that. It'll affect aircraft depart from everywhere. There's sort of a political tendency to focus on fuel, because if you have biofuels at your airports, you're reducing your own emissions, your country's emissions. And so this kind of politically biases us away from investing in aircraft and engine technologies, because those benefits aren't aren't national. So we, we kind of have to get away from this national carbon counting and think about the whole globe uh, because it's a global problem. Despite all that, David Zing believes the industry will change because it sort of has to. The whole future of aviation depends on the greening of aviation. So if you want to be an aviation leader, you have to be a green aviation leader. There are a few people trying to lead, even if only for a few minutes at a time. Vancouver's Harbor Air completed in 2019 a fully electric flight of their six-seater de Havilland Beaver floatplane. In the cockpit was founder and CEO Greg McDougall. Well, um, it was probably a mixture of emotions there because uh, it turned into a much bigger event than we kind of first thought about. And it gathered a lot of world attention and, and it, you know, became quite a sort of almost a Wright Brothers moment. And I think the thing that really struck me the most was when I was pulling back into the dock after landing and there were all these people on the dock and on the banks of the river and, you know, there was a whole bunch of people cheering. And um, it was really quite uh, an interesting moment. <laughs> and you really got the sense that, you know, this was an achievement that resonated with people. And that was very exciting because, you know, it's, it, was a, it was a confirmation 
of the vision of it. And you kind of, when you, when you do things like this, it's kind of like there's times when you kind of doubt whether or not, you know, it's, it's actually maybe all worth it or is it, you know, is it actually something that makes sense? And that was kind of a confirmation that day. So a lot of pride and a lot of, you know, sort of excitement and, and mission accomplished. Are there plans to convert any more of the uh, uh, 40 planes in your fleet to electric? Well, the ultimate goal is to convert all of them. But the issue there is that some of our flights are longer than others, but the majority of our route structure is quite short. So most of the planes that do those shorter routes can be modified quite quickly and, you know, sort of early in the, in the development of this. But the aircraft that have to fly longer routes would take more time as the technology uh, evolves and gives us more range and more payload. Uh, So what are the other challenges in in making this viable for your company and the passengers? Well, there's, you know, there's numerous challenges. I mean, not the least of which is is, uh, infrastructure. Um, So, you know, charging points. Um, The regulatory side really is the the biggest challenge at the moment because, as I said before, um, this hasn't been done before and any new technology has to be proven to be as safe or safer than what we have existing today. So what's at stake if if you can't convert the whole fleet to electric? Well, I have absolutely no doubt that we are going to be converting at least a significant portion of the aircraft in the next few years. I think the writing's on the wall right now that fully electric uh, flight is is inevitable in that in that sort of market. If you look at what's going on in the urban air mobility movement, United Airlines just contracted to, you know, buy a whole bunch of electric aircraft for short range flights. Um, it, there's just a tremendous amount of activity, both economically and, you know, with the development of the technology in this sector right now. And if you if you follow it and look at what's going on, it's really striking how this is accelerating so quickly. It's just going to be the state of the art. Can you give us a sense about when you think passengers will get to take their first all-electric flight? Well, I'm thinking that, um, you know, hopefully we'll be the first because we're kind of ahead of the game on the regulatory side. But I think probably it's doable within a year and a half to two years. And and that's sort of dictated by how many hurdles we get along the way that we don't anticipate. But there's a tremendous amount of cooperative effort going on here there really aren't, you know, a lot of people sort of pushing it in the wrong direction. Everybody's trying to push it in the right direction. Of course, you have to address the safety issues as, as they come up. But there really is a, a team of people that are, you know, all working together to get this done. So I don't see that there's going to be anything, you know, that should stand in the way ultimately of, of getting it done in the next couple of years. Well, best of luck to you, Greg. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Greg McDougall is the founder and CEO of Harbor Air. That does it for us this week. And if you haven't given us a review yet, please do. And tell a friend if you want. It helps move the climate conversation forward. And thanks to the team. Our intern, Serena Renner, associate producers, Rachel Sanders and Jennifer Van Evra, producers, Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson and Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. Joan Melanson is our executive producer. And I'm Johanna Wagstaff, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.